Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And I'm Tim Cronin. Today, we're here to talk about depositions, and we're going to offer more than 50 tips and strategies. I got 48. How'd you get 50? Because I added some. Oh, okay. All right. (laughs) So everybody knows to kind of put this in context, these are tips for you taking a deposition, for preparing for and taking a deposition. I think they're more related to the plaintiff side, probably. You know, we've done multiple podcasts about depositions and dedicated each one to like a specific area, strategy, preparation, taking it, et cetera. So we just thought it would be a good idea to take the key points from all of those and give them in one session. So Tim, you're saying that if they listen to this they don't need podcast, to listen to they the can throw away our other ones and well, not listen to them. There's great details in the other ones. So, you know, first and foremost is strategy. And that's not just about what you want to accomplish. From the outset, I think you need to figure out early in the case, what depositions you want to take. And then throughout the case, as you learn more information, you're making a decision about if you should take a particular deposition. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. You guys have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think you need to ask the question, why? That's really what it is. Why am I taking this deposition? What happens when I take this deposition? Is it going to advance the case? Is it going to hurt my case? Is it going to help my case? A lot of attorneys have a, quote, list of witnesses and the idea is to run out and take everybody's deposition to see what they have to say. Not a good idea. No, right. Your goal should be to improve your case in some way. Let's pick an auto accident case, okay? If there are witnesses, you know, you probably want to take the eyewitnesses to the case. But what I see a lot is the cases that we handle, we're not disputing whether there's an injury or not. For the most part, it's a serious, significant injury. And our clients have treated with numerous doctors or medical providers. Sometimes the folks on the other side want to run out and take everybody's deposition. And I'm wondering how in the heck, you know, I just don't know how that helps them when it's not really being disputed, but I see that a lot. And sometimes what makes it even worse is they'll take issue with what the doctor's saying. What the doctor's saying is fairly straightforward, reasonable, sensible. They're just end up picking a fight with somebody who kind of, you know, gets go, upset and gets then upset goes further goes than what they said in their what, Right, exactly. So <laughs> just because you, know, you can take a depo or, doesn't mean you should. Right. And that works on both sides of the aisle. Yes. This reminds me of Daniel Kahneman has some writings about risk where when risk gets very small, people seem to get more obsessed about it. And I'm thinking there's cases where there might be a witness or two out there. Ninety nine percent chance there's nothing there. But. What if you have an insurance company supervising your work or you're just nervous? Like, what if that guy does come into trial and does say something that's out of the blue? There is this nervousness, I think, among some attorneys that they want to eliminate all risk. And they might do that by just, you know, if they got the budget, just take it. I would say if that's what you're doing to eliminate risk, you may be doing the exact opposite and creating more risk for your client. Right. You really need to make smart decisions. And I think if you have a client who doesn't get it, You need to sit down with them and explain to them why you shouldn't take a particular deposition. I think that's an important first step for any depo is really giving careful thought to whether you should be doing it. And this includes experts, as we've talked about before. If you have a report from an expert and you don't think it goes as far as the other side wants that expert to ultimately go, don't take the depo. 
they're limited to the report. And it applies to treating doctors and sometimes witnesses. Yeah, and it depends on what court you're in, too. If you're in federal court, there's more of a chance they'll be limited to what they have in their report. Next is, if you are going to take a depot, number two is think about when you want to take it. Sometimes for a particular depot, it might be a good idea to take it early or to take it late. For example, treating doctors. If you take treating doctors early and get everything you need about the injury and causation, you know you don't need to go get an expert about those things. Yeah, and I would say that in terms of when you take a deposition, it's going to depend on what information you need from the witness to put your case on. For instance, if you have a case where your case is pretty much laid out in the medical records and there are admissions in the records that your expert has relied on to give you a case, you might want to go out and go right in and take the defendant doctor right away. Yeah. They might not be as prepared. They don't know what your case is about yet, and there may be an advantage in doing that. On the other hand, if you need information to provide to your expert, you got to take other depositions first. And if you're having fights about written discovery and not getting what you think is good information about what exists or not exists, I'll take a corporate rep even earlier. To get more names, find out what documents there are, how I can get them to provide ammo for a motion to compel, and get the names of people I will want to take later. If it's a type of case I've handled before and I know everything that's going to happen in the corporate rep depot, and I'm just preserving for trial like a hammer depot, I might take it a lot later in the case once I know everything. Number three is whether you videotape the deposition. I've had a lot of depositions on Zoom. I haven't yet run across anyone who said they object to hitting the record button. Yeah. I think it's great. It used to be much more expensive. If you have a lot of depositions, it can add up, but that makes it more of a temptation. It's cheap now. And cheap. Yeah. I love how now everybody's recorded because I often will get upset if I think one of the attorneys is being unprofessional or doing things they clearly wouldn't be doing if it was trial testimony and that they're not on camera. Well, now with Zoom, everybody's recorded. And if they're doing something like nodding at the witness or whatever, you can show it to the judge if you need to. Here's the other thing, too. Communication is mostly nonverbal. And taking a deposition and just reading it to the jury, just putting it up on a screen and reading the words, they miss most of what they need to see. Does the witness appear truthful? Do they appear credible? Their tone of voice, their body language, crossing their hands, rolling their eyes, they are the judge of credibility. I mean, the jury decides not just whether what the witness is saying makes sense, but are they a credible witness? Even you know, if you're just going to use it for impeachment, right? If you have an answer from an expert and you think you're going to be able to use it for impeachment if they give a different answer at trial, it's so much more effective than saying, do you remember this question and this answer? If you pop up the little video clip and not just did they answer it a certain way, they sat there for 15 seconds. Right. The not delays. To answer yeah, it. Right. The <laughs> delays between questions and answers. None of that gets down on the transcript. I think the rule that helps you decide this is you don't need to use the video. If you use the video, you have a choice of whether you want to read portions of the deposition or use it. If you don't record it, you know, that choice is made for you way before it needs to be. Right. Tim, to your point, I had a deposition two weeks ago, an arbitration that occurred one week ago. And it was a corporate rep who blew up and got really snotty. He was on Zoom being recorded. And I think he forgot he was on Zoom yeah. being recorded. Yeah. So, of course, I played that 30 seconds to the arbitrator. But I think it's gold to show those mannerisms. The words did not at all match what the video <laughs> showed. Yeah. So, you know, once you've decided it's a depot you want to take, you figured out when you're going to take it. You know, if you're going to videotape it or if you're doing it in person, videotape it and do it by Zoom, whatever. Next, you really start thinking about 
okay, what do I need to do in this depot? And so this is point four now. I think we have four through 16 under the category goals. And the overarching one, I think, is always to make your case better, right? Sounds kind of silly to be even saying that. In whatever way. Not just to do it for doing its sake and find out information to make your case better. And so before you start making an outline, reviewing materials, digging up dirt on the witness, sit for a while and think about what it is you want or need from the deponent to improve your case, which will obviously depend upon the case and who it is. So rule number five then is make a written list of what you want to accomplish during the deposition. It then organizes you and helps you for everything you have to do later. Yeah, and it forces you to actually think about what you want to get from the witness and also how you're going to get it. Sometimes you don't know what the witness is going to say. You're going in and it's almost like you're preparing for two depositions. Yeah. For the one where they go this way and the one where they go that way. Yeah, but you know, you know what you need to get. You know what mm-hmm. your case is about or you should. You know what the issues are. So I think especially on the plaintiff's side, you've got a really good idea of what your issues are and you should have a pretty good idea of what their defenses are going to be. So the next rules six through 16 are just more specific things that might be on your written list for that witness. Number six is nail down the facts of your case. This is such an easy thing and it's so important and it's so overlooked. What are the elements of the case? If it's a product case, did you make the product? Yeah, Did you right. design the product? Did Are you, you manufacture in the business it? of doing that? Right. And right. look at your verdict director. Figure out what you need to make the case. You need to nail down the facts of the if case. If you didn't nail it down, they will dispute it at trial, right? You want yes. to eliminate unnecessary problems. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is if the sides can decide, rarely are you going to agree with the other side completely about what happened. In other words, the facts. But in most cases, there's not a dispute about most of the facts. Yeah. And you kind of get those out of the way, and then you've narrowed it down to the one or two facts that really are at issue. Rule number seven, another topic that could be on your written list, depending on the witness, find out who knows key information. And you want to do this early on with the defendant. It's really a key area for a corporate rep. And especially with the corporate rep, because you recall with a corporate rep, it's the defendant picking who they want to be their representative at that deposition. And they've done that for a number of reasons. And you may want to talk to somebody who you pick. It's probably worthwhile, you know, comparing the corporate rep deposition to written discovery, which is often painful and truncated and frustrating. And it's nothing like having a real human being sitting there who might blurt something out that's not in the answer to the interrogatory. Yeah, that the lawyer very carefully was trying to make sure you don't find out. Well, now you have a live person who's under oath. And if you push on him enough, you can probably find out how you can get the information. Rule number eight can also be on your list of what you want to accomplish. Identify and confirm contents of key documents. I think a lot of people may forget you have to have laid a foundation for every document that you want to use. So do that as early as you can so you don't have to worry about it the rest of the case. The documents lead to other documents, but you want to confirm what it means. Is it going to be interpreted in a different way than what you're trying to use it for? So hammer it down that it means what you've been interpreting it to mean. That's such a big part of preparing for a deposition. I didn't appreciate this back in law school, but it seems like 90% of your time is spent fishing through documents, organizing them, trying to make sense of them. Big boxes of documents. That wasn't part of the way cases were tried a long time ago. Yeah. And now it dominates so many cases. Yeah. So much time is spent on getting, organizing, making sense of the documents, and then figuring out which are your key ones and then knowing them by heart. 
Number nine, we've kind of talked about with nail down the facts of your case, but establish one or more elements of your case. Yeah. For instance, if it's agency, if it's employment, you got a trucking case, you're suing the driver and the company. Was the driver in the course and scope of his or her employment at the time? Things that seem pretty obvious and straightforward, but you don't have evidence of it. You're not going to have a submissible case. What I would recommend is look at your verdict director, go to the jury instructions. What are the elements? If it's a product case, you know, you need to show that not only they sold, manufactured, or designed the product, but it was being used in a manner reasonably anticipated. Sometimes you'll get a fight about that, but most often, I guess depending on the circumstances, you won't. The time to try and get an agreement or stipulation or this testimony isn't when you're halfway through your case at trial. Right. You want to try to get it all nailed down beforehand. This relates back to the very first rule. If you're prepping for a witness's depot and you're having trouble figuring out if you can establish one or more elements of your case with that witness, you maybe want to go back and reconsider whether you should be taking their depot. Rule number 10, undermine defenses. This is really not just important, but it's a very effective goal. And again, it ties into the timing of the deposition. A lot of the cases that we have, we've had them before, especially the product cases, some of the med mal cases, even auto or truck cases, you know from handling cases before similar that what the defenses are going to be. What crazy stuff right. they're going to have their experts right. say. And I think the idea is whatever that defense is, you're in a better position early on, even before maybe your experts are deposed, to start eliciting testimony that will help undermine what you know their experts are ultimately going to say. For example, in a trucking case or an auto case, you think they're going to have an accident reconstructionist. And you know from taking maybe that accident reconstructionist in another case that there's like a key factual issue that they're going to have to rely on and they need as foundation to give their opinion. When you take the truck driver first thing in the case, you can eliminate any possibility of them establishing that foundation. Of that yeah, fact. I'm thinking of some product cases, for instance, relying on regulation, standards, things like that as a defense. Well, we met all the federal standards, therefore our product couldn't be defective or unreasonably dangerous. You know, early on before the experts get involved in the case, maybe with a corporate rep or a lay witness, you say, well, isn't it up to you to make your product safe? It's not up to the federal government or, you know, things like that, that you can use to undermine what you know they're ultimately going to argue. Or reasonably anticipated use. There you go. Uh, right? That's a great one. You know, Later, that's a really good one. experts might try to say this wasn't a reasonably anticipated use, blah, blah, blah. I find you can usually get the corporate rep very early to admit, you knew someone could be using it this way. You anticipated that. Well, I'll that, give you a perfect example. A case that we have pending now, it's going to trial in six weeks, and it's an intersectional collision. Our client is in a car at a stoplight. The light changes from red to green, pulls into the intersection, and is hit in the side by another vehicle. The fuel system is compromised, and there's a fire. And Early on in that case, I asked non-experts, certainly our vehicle was being used in a manner reasonably anticipated. They were at a red light. The light right. changed. They drove into the intersection. Driving it. That's it. <laughs> and everybody, all non-experts said, yeah, sure. And yet when we get to the experts, they wouldn't give me that. They weren't denying it. They said, well, you know, I don't know what that means. Right. And I can't comment on that. And who I'm knows what's reasonable? I'm to not admit that to right. you. I don't know what they're anticipating. <laughs> what who are those words anticipated? What do they mean? Right. <laughs> so get it before it's an issue. And as I said, I think the plaintiff has a little bit of an advantage here because we've spent a whole lot of time on our case. You should have spent a lot of time on it before it's filed and you're taking depositions. You've already enlisted experts. You've met with them, talked to them. You know what they have to say. You know what the defenses are going to be. So you've got the lay of the land for your entire case before you start taking depositions. 
And so I think being able to do a lot of the things we're suggesting early on in the case is an advantage. And on those rules nine and 10, establish one or more elements of your case and undermine defenses, you want to be able to accomplish at least one of those with any witness. To be fair, on the flip side, for a defendant, you should either be trying to establish one or more elements of some affirmative defense that you have, or identifying if there's one real problem area for the plaintiff, focusing on undermining that element of the plaintiff's case. Rule number 11, cut off avenues of escape. And again, this is all under specific goals you may have for a depot. For example, you want to eliminate a witness from being able to say anything meaningful if you already have everything you need from others possibly, or box a witness in to what they can or cannot say at trial to avoid later creativity. If there's a dispute with a witness about what you're saying should have been done, for instance, you say, you agree a car company shouldn't sell any vehicle unless it's tested before they test it. And they might argue with you as to whether or not it was tested, but you can get them to agree with the concept to say, well, okay, so whether or not it was tested, you certainly agree that it should have been, correct? Oh, we tested it. We, te you know, well, you agree that it should have been tested. So later, if you find out they didn't test it, they can't go, yeah, but we don't have to. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, just generally, if you get what you think is a good admission from a witness, don't just celebrate and end the depot. Give some thought to how at trial later could they try to get out of that admission and then eliminate those ways they could try to get out of it. Rule number 12, establish rules of the road. This is the most effective use of a deposition. You're going to be arguing about the standard of care, whatever it is, whether it's a med mal case, an auto case, a product liability case. Does it involve testing? Does it involve a warning? Yeah. Do you think you should warn about this risk? Right. And do you have to design around this risk? And what you want to avoid is a deposition or worse trial. You were negligent. No, we weren't. You were negligent. No, we weren't. Your conduct wasn't reasonable. Yes, it was. I mean, you really need to establish a line. We'll mention Rick Friedman's book, Rules of the Road. If you haven't read it, you should read it. Whatever industry you're basing it on, what should have been done in this situation? And you really need to lay the groundwork and get admissions from the other side in terms of what should have been done in that particular situation. He calls his book Rules of the Road because it's applying the rules of the road we all know. So, I mean, in an auto case, generally, the jury already has a good idea of some basic rules of what you should and should not do. You must yield if you do not have the right of way. You should not speed. You do not blow the stop sign. Taking that concept and finding a way to apply it to more complex cases where you're not just saying, I think they should have designed it this way, and they're saying, uh, no, we shouldn't have. Yeah, a six-year-old child who goes to the emergency room with blood in his or her stool shouldn't be sent home until they figure out what the diagnosis is. <laughs> right. right. And that was a case that we had where we argued about a lot of things, but ultimately that was the rule. And you can find lots of sources for this, literature, textbooks, industry guidelines, standards, various sources. Testimony. Yeah, right. past testimony. But even if you don't have those, still try to think about what you want to say is the bright line, whether you have literature or a standard or guideline, just try to create them in your case, get them to agree to them. And then the only thing you're talking about is, did they cross it? It's a factual question. I think about one example, I was suing an insurance company. Is it important for an insurance company to write a policy that's easy to understand? You know, things like that. And that didn't come from anything except just an idea that made sense. And the person said, yeah, after attorney objected about the negligence standard, it's mushy, right? And so you don't want to go all the way to trial and then have mush. 
to argue, like, is it negligent? Is it not? And Rick Friedman not only says that, but he says to leave it mushy like that, to have negligence as the ultimate standard is the defendant's playground. They like it there. Oh, yeah. It is critical to get standards out on the table. Especially in med mal cases where the definition of negligence in med mal cases, I know in Missouri and I think in most states, they've rewritten them so they're like nonsensical. Juries don't know what they mean. You know, in an auto case or a product case, if it's negligence, everybody understands it's failure to use reasonable care. Basically, were they reasonable? In med mal cases, it's gobbledygook that I don't even know what it means. Did they fail to use that degree of skill and learning ordinarily used under the same or similar circumstances by members of defendant's profession? And the jury's like, what? Do I have to decide that no other doctor would have done this? And so you need to establish what does that mean? Get their experts or their doctors to agree, okay, I just read that standard to you. And applying that, you should or should not do A, B, C. Put it in a concrete example. Taking a detailed history from the patient. If must that's what be your done. case is about. That must be done. It's part of the standard of care. Right. Not doing that would be a violation of the standard of care. Agreed. Piece by piece. Whatever the conduct is, frame it in terms of do you need to do that or not? And if you don't do it, is that a breach of the standard of care? And the same thing works on the defense side. For example, in a med mal case where you have an issue possibly with the plaintiff not sharing all the information or being truthful with the doctor, and that could be a part of the problem they didn't get done what they need to get done, then you ask our experts or our client, do you believe a patient must be truthful with their doctor? Does a doctor have a right to rely upon the information being given to the patient? So I think it can apply to both sides. When it works well, part of that is because the standard was admitted by your opponent. It's not like, well, we have to follow this mushy thing that the court gave us about negligence and reasonable care and who knows what those mean. Yeah. But if you can get the defendant, from our perspective as plaintiffs, if you can they get agree them to that admit, means this in this case. Yeah, they said that this is the standard. And I've so many times I've heard you, John, and I do it, and Eric, I'm sure you do the same thing, where one of the first things out of our mouths in opening statement is everybody here agrees with the following rules. You must et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's what the case is about. Did they do it? Now let me tell you what happened. Rule number 13, and this is if it is an expert depot, try to take away an expert's opinion before they have a chance to give it. I really like this one. Let's take a medical malpractice case, for example. An example of this is when you have an expert and you know the expert's going to come in and say it was okay to give this particular medication. Okay, maybe the medication was counterindicated because of the history or whatever. You know that's what they're going to say. And sometimes I'll start out a deposition doing exactly this, an expert's deposition. I will go through articles they've written or other articles, anything that you can find. Go through a half a dozen articles that all say the same thing, that you're not supposed to do this. If these three things appear, you shouldn't give this medication. It's counterindicated. And then you really build the case, like shaking their confidence a little bit. You're not going to come in here and try to say that all of these are wrong. Whereas if you start off with what are your opinions, once they give it, It's a lot harder to get them to go, yeah, that opinion was wrong. If you make them not want to give it at all, it's a lot easier. Yeah, they're going to be a little more agreeable, maybe. And I've done it in product cases, too, where a case that I mentioned where we're talking about the failure to test, did this fuel system on this vehicle need to be tested? And what I will start the deposition with is half a dozen documents, internal documents from the defendant confirming that this test needs to be done. They need to do this test. This test is mandatory. And then by the time you get finished with your initial questioning, 
you've pretty much, even if the expert sticks with their opinion and gives it, it's tarnished. <laughs> it's you know, ridiculous. It's, it's like, right. Yeah, ridiculous. You know, sometimes, it, depending on the situation, it could be even deemed ridiculous. That's it for today's Deposition Tips. We'll be back next time with more. This has been another episode of The Jury is Out. I'm Eric Feith. I'm John Simon. And I'm Tim Cronin. See you next time. The Jury is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.